The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for His kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit ShadyGrovePCA.org. You may want to follow along in the Pew Bible at the book of Daniel. We'll be starting at page 690. If you just turn to your Pew Bible to page 690. I will reference a few things that aren't going to be on the slides from the beginning of Daniel. And uh, so as we're entering the, the Advent season here, we're, we're taking a little detour from the, from the Gospel of Mark. And hopefully we'll be able to see how um, Daniel is being quoted a bunch in Mark. Or, and there are certainly echoes back to Daniel where Peter is very familiar with it. And Peter, of course, inspired uh, Mark who wrote the book. And um, so we're just doing four, four sermons, so unfortunately some of these wonderful passages in Daniel, like Daniel in the lion's den, uh, we're not actually going to consider. We're looking specifically at the passages where <clears throat> Christ shows up in the book of Daniel. And uh, before I, I read the passage, I just want to kind of like zoom out for a second. If you're not familiar at all with the book of Daniel, and you're wondering, what in the world is this that I'm getting ready to read? Because it's a pretty wild passage of a dream and its interpretation. Let's just kind of scroll back out for a minute. If you remember, David became the king of Israel. After him was Solomon. And Solomon's reign, uh, his name means actually peace, Shalomo. And there's this great peace that's over Israel. But after Solomon, trouble begins. And the kingdom is split into two. In Israel, there's two, two kingdoms, a northern kingdom, a southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom has hardly any good kings. And it's mainly bad news. And the two big dates of the Old Testament are 722 B.C., which is when the northern kingdom is conquered by the Assyrians. And then the southern kingdom, where Jerusalem resides, where the temple resides, there's a mixed bag of good kings, and, so, and bad ones too, and ultimately the southern kingdom is going to be taken into captivity for 70 years, and that date is 587 or 586, depending on who you read. But those are the two big dates, 722, 586, 587. But when the Babylonians come, and there's, an, there's entire books written about, here they come, they're getting ready to come, like the whole book of Jeremiah, um, and Daniel is written as... He's in exile. And so the, there's, there's three waves of deportation, okay? So they come in, in 605 are the first people that are taken to Babylon, B.C., and then 597 B.C., and then the last wave is 587, 586. Well, Daniel goes in the first wave. He's a first waver. So 605 B.C., Daniel is being taken by the Babylonians down into Babylon, taken from, you know, just imagine you're being in your country and another country comes and takes you and by force and now you're taken to a different country. That's when Daniel is written, okay? So he's taken in 605 BC and now he's, uh, and he's just a young man. He's probably 12, 13 years old. I mean, he's very young and we're told at the very beginning of the book, Okay, and this is when the Babylonians come, Jerusalem's burned, the temple's destroyed, walls are destroyed, and Jerusalem's left in ruins. And we're told at the very beginning of Daniel, page 690 on your pew Bible, very beginning, it says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem, besieged it. 
the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Asphanesh, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, um, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. So the book begins with a declaration of victory. And the sign of victory in Daniel's day is not hoisting the flag in the capital city of the place you're conquering. The way that you conquered back then was you took the vessels of their God from their temple and you took them out of there and you took them and you put them in the temple of your God and you put them there and you're saying, my God is greater than your God. And so the book begins with very humbling, interesting fashion that the people of God have to endure the doxology. Praise Marduk, from whom all blessings flow. Praise Marduk, all creatures here below. And the people of God have to hear this in Babylon. The book begins with a seeming defeat of Yahweh, a seeming defeat of God's people as they're taken into captivity. Furthermore, the way to indoctrinate the Israelites into the ways of the Babylonians was to take the best and brightest brains of these young Israelites and let's indoctrinate them in all the ways of the Babylonians and will lead the rest of the Israelites as they follow them into becoming good citizens of Babylon and good worshipers of Marduk. That's how this book begins. And Daniel and his friends are going to learn the ways of the Babylonians, but they're not going to really conform. They're not going to assimilate into the worldliness of Babylon. They're going to eat differently. They're going to drink differently. They're going to worship differently. And they're going to follow Yahweh. And so in chapter 2 of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar has this dream. He's the king of Babylon. And he's troubled by the dream. That should remind God's people of another story in the Bible where God's people have been taken captive into slavery And the pagan king of that country also had a dream that nobody could interpret. But one of God's people was brought out of prison, and he's able to interpret the dream for Pharaoh. So children, you can lean over and tell your parents who we're talking about. We're talking about Joseph. And so chapter 2 begins with telling us that Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, his spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Shakespeare once said, uneasy lies the head that wears a crown, and Nebuchadnezzar's not sleeping so well. And so Nebuchadnezzar starts with this insistence of chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. It's just the insistence. I got some eyes for you. So the first is insistence. He's insisting that somebody interprets this dream, and it's on the pain of death if you're not able to interpret. The problem was he, he won't tell him the dream. And both scholars and commentators think that the reason he won't tell him the dream, he wants the dream and the interpretation is because he himself forgot the dream. He just knew that it greatly troubled him. But in chapter 4, he remembers the dream. But in chapter 2, there's no mention that he remembers the dream. So he is demanding both the dream and the interpretation. And all these wise men of Babylon are telling him that no mortal man can do what you're asking. But kings can often be irrational. And so the news comes down all the way down the pike that Daniel and his friends are going to be killed too because all the wise men are going to be killed. And that leads to Daniel's inquiry in verses 14 to 16. 
And he inquires as to what's going on. He's the last one to find out about this. And he calls upon his three friends to begin to implore God to help. Help us or we're going to be destroyed. And so they begin to pray to God that God would reveal this mystery. And it's revealed to Daniel in a dream. And Daniel is then introduced to Nebuchadnezzar. But more importantly, Daniel's going to introduce Nebuchadnezzar to Yahweh. So let us not forget who Yahweh is this morning because we're told about him and we're told about the invisible hand of providence. So if you look at Daniel 2.20, as he begins to speak to Nebuchadnezzar, before that he praises God because God has shown him this uh, dream and its interpretation. He blesses God to whom belongs wisdom and might. It belongs to Yahweh. Is this your God this morning? He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. And so he gives praise to God and thanks. And then he's brought in before the king, and he tells him the dream. And this is the dream and its interpretation. So beginning at verse 31. You saw, O king, and behold a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, and its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and to whose hands he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beast of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage. But they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. And in, those, and in the days of the, those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, And that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. Let me pray for us. 
Lord, help us to understand this word and what relevance it might have to our lives. May we be a grateful people that we have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And we pray that we would be grateful and that we would worship you with reverence and awe. I ask in your name. Amen. Well, we have these four kingdoms that are, we have this vivid dream. Perhaps we've got a slide that we can put up there to show you the, the typical understanding of these kingdoms here. And so what you have is this head of gold, which is Babylon, and Babylon is going to rule from 606 to 539 B.C. And then in the end of Daniel 5, we, we see that the end of the Babylonian kingdom and the, the Medes and the Persians come and they conquer. And it's interesting that these entire kingdoms, um, verse 38 speaks of, of that head, which is gold. But then you have in verse 39... It says, another kingdom inferior to you shall arise, and a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all the earth. And so in 23 English words, we get two entire kingdoms in hundreds of years, and that's all they get in Scripture. And this is, the bronze is, is the, <clears throat> the, speaking of Alexander the Great, and the kingdom of Greece, which is from 331 uh, B.C. to 30 B.C. And then you have this kingdom that's going to come that gets three verses from verse 40 to 43. It talks about this kingdom that's going to be a divided kingdom. And as you're looking at these kingdoms, as you, it's interesting as you look at them, you see gold, then you see silver, then you see bronze, then you see iron, and then you see clay. And so this, this, these kingdoms are very top-heavy. They're, they're, they're strong and then they're weak and they're declining in their significance. And it's referring to here this great uh, nation will be Rome. And yet Rome, it's saying about Rome that it's got feet of clay. And when we say feet of clay today and we say someone's got feet of clay, what do we mean by that idiom and that mannerism? He's just feet of clay. It means at best he's just a human. And he's very finite. And it's usually their fatal flaw. They refer to him as their feet of clay. Well, here you have this, this reference is referring back to Daniel and to the kingdom of Rome, and it's just feet of clay. And even Paul says about himself that we're nothing special. He says about himself, we are just jars of clay. We have this message in jars of clay. And so in the midst of these four kingdoms, and you can leave that up for a minute. Put that back if you don't mind. At the very bottom, we're told that in the days of those kings, we're, we're told some profound things in verse 34 and 35, and then in 44 and 45. We're told about a stone that's going to be cut out by no human hand. That's a pretty big deal, okay? If you trace that through the rest of Scripture about no human hand, and the idea is that God will get all the glory and it's not going to be compromised by human hands. But human hands were not to be used for the stones that were used for the altar in worship. And so ultimately this no human hand idea is ultimately we're talking about the cornerstone. And when we say, you know, um, uh, let us rejoice and be glad in it. You know, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. We've all kind of heard that, ver that verse. Do you know the context of that verse? The context is Psalm 118 where the psalmist says that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. 
This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Let's rejoice that there's going to be this cornerstone, and this cornerstone is going to be different than any stones. It's going to be cut out by no human hand, okay? And so we'll come back to that. But this is a pretty significant idea is that this stone is, is cut out by no human hand and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. And we know that, that when Christ came, he came during the time of Rome, and the people were <clears throat> in exile, and they're longing to get rid of the oppression of Rome. In the very midst of that, Jesus is going to be this stone. And this stone is going to come, and it's going it's to conquer this Roman world and all of its polytheism and worshiping of its emperor, and Jesus himself is going to claim that he is the one that is to receive all the worship and all the glory. And just a few centuries, Rome is, is converted. And all of these, you know, it becomes the dominant religion, whereas Constantine himself becomes a Christian. What happened? Well, Rodney Stark has written about it in his book called The Rise of Christianity. He's an interesting fellow. He just died this year at 88 years old, and he was a professor at different universities, and for a long time he was not a believer. And when he wrote the book, The Rise of Christianity, he was not a believer. But in 2007, he changed his profession and said that he became a believer in Christ. Well, Rodney Stark wrote about his question in the book is, how could Christianity take over Rome? How could this happen? That's the premise of the book. That's the first paragraph. And he writes the whole book to explain it. And he gives lots of reasons Okay, and he doesn't want to take away from ultimately God does this, but what were the, he's a sociologist, what were the reasons? Here's a couple of the reasons that he gave. One is that the worldview of the Christians made more sense when it came to suffering and hardship. And when the different plagues hit in Rome, the first people to flee were everybody but the Christians. And the people who stayed and ministered, even to death, were the Christians who stayed in the cities and ministered to the dying. That spoke volumes. So they had a theology that could account for suffering. They had people that gave up their lives. And the women were so much better treated. There was this, this was beautiful for women because they understood that women were actually being elevated in this Christian. I mean, before that, the women were, were treated like like cattle, basically, and property, and, and the women were, were taken, and, and often before they're even in puberty, they were married to somebody, and often abused. And so, all of a sudden, women are being respected, and loved, and treated well, and that accounted for much. And the last thing that he notes, I mean, there's many things, but he talks about the open networks, that the Christians had an open network, that whenever there's a closed network, meaning if you're no longer inviting people in, they were constantly bringing people in, and they had a heart for outreach, and so they're constantly bringing people in. And so Rome all of a sudden becomes Christianized in just a few centuries. 
Because in Daniel 2.44, he says, that God, In those days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to, to an end, and it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. And so... I don't think Nebuchadnezzar was really all that fond of this dream because in the next chapter, what does he do? He's going to make this big head, this temple, 70 feet tall and 7 feet wide, and it's going and, and to be of gold, and he's going to have everybody worship it because he's going to elevate the first part of the dream that, oh, I'm the head of gold, so let's magnify myself. And it's clear that he has some real anger issues and some real pride issues, right? I mean, his anger is, is thrust out in this chapter that he's going to irrationally kill all the wise men. In the next chapter, if you don't bow down and, and worship when you hear the music sing, if you don't worship this image, to the fire you go. And then there's these guys, we'll learn about it next week, that don't bow down. And he's so mad that he has the furnace hired, heated seven times hotter, and the very people that are going to that are supposed to be killed don't die, but the people that are heating the fire are killed. And then in the next chapter, we're going to see in his pride and his arrogance, giving glory to himself, Nebuchadnezzar praises himself for this kingdom that he has built and all of his pomp. And immediately God struck him down, and he's going to crawl on the ground like an animal until he knows that God gives the kingdom to whom he will. And that he's completely sovereign. And we see throughout history, I mean, even in, our, in my lifetime, I've seen some kingdoms and some kings come down and sometimes in shocking fashion, isn't it? I remember when the wall of communism came down in 1990. I'm sure some of you remember that. In Berlin, Germany, you had the communist wall that separated East Germany from West Germany. I came across a story this week of... Several years after the, the fall of the wall, Estonia regained its sovereignty, and this town called Tartu decided to auction off its statue of the Bolshevik leader, Vladimir Lenin, the starting price of $15,000. And so here is a statue that decorated a, a town square in Soviet uh, you know, communism, and now just a few years later, it's nothing more than a centerpiece for a municipal fundraiser with a starting price of $15,000 for this statue. Kingdoms come and kingdoms go. Some of you remember, well, in April 2002 was the birthday of Saddam Hussein. And for his birthday in 2002, a 39-foot statue was erected and made for him in Baghdad. And exactly one year later, the U.S. troops entered Baghdad, and they put a rope around that massive birthday present of that 39-foot statue. And we all remember seeing the footage of Saddam Hussein and his statue being pulled over, and that was the end of that kingdom. You see, kings and kingdoms, presidents, dictators, democracies, tyrannies, and monarchies come and go and enter the landfill of history. What seems an empire was merely an episode, says Dale Ralph Davis in his commentary here, and he's correct. Alistair Begg, in his little commentary on Daniel, he tells a story about Lord Reith. And Lord Reith, in the 1920s, he established the BBC, the British 
Broadcasting Corporation, and from 1927, he served as its first director general. And he was somewhat of a, a severe man. He was a very tall, six, six foot six. <clears throat> and as the BBC began to be carried away by the tide of secularism that swept through Britain in the 60s, a young producer stood up in a meeting. And he said to Lord Reith that the world was changing and that the BBC did not need to continue with its religious broad, uh, pro programming anymore. People were no longer interested in it, and the church was becoming increasingly obsolete. Lord Reith, all six foot six of him, stood up, told the young man to take his seat, and he said, the church will stand at the grave of the BBC. The church will stand at the grave of the BBC. You see, that's what Jan Daniel 2 is telling us, is that there's going to be a kingdom that's going to come, and it's going to come during the time of Rome. And it's going to start as this little stone. And this little stone is going to be this kingdom that's never going to be destroyed. It's established by God. It's an everlasting kingdom. It's never going to be eliminated. It's never going to be eclipsed. Its transition will never happen, and it's going to put to end all other kingdoms. This is the kingdom of which Jesus said, I will build my church upon this rock, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. In the 1600s, there was a reformer and theologian in Scotland by the name of Andrew Melville. And he has this famous speech that he gave to James VI of Scotland. And James VI, this was right around the 1600s, and some thought that James VI was overstepping his bounds. And this is what Andrew Melville had to say to him. Sir, we will always humbly reverence your majesty in public. But since we have this occasion to be with your majesty in private, we must discharge our duty or else be traitors both to Christ and to you. Therefore, sir, at diverse times I have told you, and now again I must tell you, there are two kings and two kingdoms in Scotland. This is long before Michael Horton came around. There are two kings and two kingdoms in Scotland. There is King James, the Lord of the Commonwealth, and there is Christ Jesus, the King of the Church, whose subject James VI is, and of whose kingdom he is not a king, nor a lord, nor a head. We will yield to you your place and give you all due obedience. But again, I say you're not the head of the church. You cannot give us that eternal life that we seek for even in this world, and you cannot deprive, it, deprive us of it. Hello, powerful speech. And so when you look again at this statue, and you put that slide back up with the statue, and it says that this little stone is going to conquer. You think of this great image, and then you have this little stone. What does it remind you of? Does it remind you of another story in the Bible where there's this great big giant creature, maybe like nine feet tall, and there's this little shepherd boy who happens to go down to the brook and he happens to gather five little stones and he puts one of those stones in his slingshot and he runs to the battle and it was once again, my God is greater than your gods and Goliath is cursing David by his gods and he's telling him that he's gonna you know, do these things and he's cursing him and David is saying that I come to you at the name of the Lord of hosts. You have defied his name. And I'm going to cut off your head this very day. Uh, he was right. 
And so that little stone sunk into his forehead, and Goliath went sprawling to the ground. Because the big theme in the book of Daniel, here it is, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. That's what Jesus says in Luke 18, 14. Isn't it interesting how this book began in such irony that, that my God is greater than your God, and, and, and these, these vessels have been taken from Jerusalem and from the temple, and they've been taken down to Babylon and put in their temple, and now Marduk seems like he has won and that the gods are, are somehow better. And yet, what happens in Daniel chapter 5? When the hand shows up on the wall? I mean, when people talk about the handwriting on the wall, what are they referring to? They're referring to Daniel 5, where there's this King Belshazzar, who is, and if you look over there at Daniel 5 for just a moment, because what he does is he's having a big feast, and he commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple of Jerusalem be brought. Here they are. Hey, let's, let's, let's take the, the very um, gods of, or the God of Israel whom we've won over and, and take those vessels and let's celebrate. They bring in these golden vessels that they had taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his lord, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. My God is greater than your God. Oh, really? Immediately, the fingers of a hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall in the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. The king's color changed. His thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. He's not looking so powerful now, is he? And what is the writing on the wall? Mene, mene, tekel, uparsin. You've been weighed in the scales and found wanting. Your kingdom has been divided from you. And that very night, while he's celebrating and drinking, the Medes and the Persians are stopping up the river, so they're getting ready to come in. And that very night, they come in and they, ta- and they conquer Babylon. And, the, and that country is pillaged by the Medes and the Persians. And so what's the irony is that the book begins of taking us and reminding us, how does Babylon begin? It takes you back to Genesis 11, and the people are are trying to build a tower to Babel. They're trying to, let's make a name for ourselves. And God confuses the people and their language that, no, you cannot do this. And how does God bring down Babel in Daniel 5? They're so confused, they can't even read the writing on the wall. But as soon as it's read to them, down comes Babylon, and it all comes down in a night. You see, but Daniel is delivered time and again, and his friends are delivered time and again. Daniel's going to be thrown to wild beasts, and yet they're going to be tamed and subdued as they're being ruled over, as we get a little picture of new heavens and new earth, as wild beasts are being brought under dominion. And that should ring a little bell to to Mark chapter 1 as we're introduced to Jesus, that Jesus is immediately drove out into the wilderness. He's in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals. And they're being tamed. And the angels were ministering to him. You see, Jesus is the true and better Daniel. 
and Daniel. And Jesus is the one who's bringing in this kingdom that's going to last forever, that will not be replaced, there will be no transition. And the pagan kings at the end of each chapter of Daniel, these different pagan kings are all acknowledging, your king Yahweh, there's none like him. He is an everlasting king, and his dominion is forever. And so God is going to take Nebuchadnezzar from his polytheism to the end of Daniel 4. You have Nebuchadnezzar writing the chapter himself. Nebuchadnezzar writing inspired scripture in the end of Daniel 4 has is Nebuchadnezzar changing from a polytheist to him saying his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are as accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? And so in the book, or Nebuchadnezzar says at the end of chapter 4 of Daniel, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. And so we see Jesus is the one that Nebuchadnezzar is actually praising. Jesus is this God of the Old Testament. He's the stone that's cut out by no human hand. Now what's interesting about coming back to this stone cut out by no human hand is that in Right when the law is given in Exodus 20, then we get a command about if the, at the altar, <clears throat> the stones are not to be touched by any human hands. They're not to be a cut stone. And then they're told, when you go into the promised land, I want you to pick up stones, and they're not to be cut stones. I want you to make a memorial, an altar, and I want you to worship me. And so Deuteronomy 27.6 and then Joshua 8.31 is when it's fulfilled. And they take the stones and they make it clear that it's no human hands have touched these stones. And then when the temple is built in 1 Kings 6, verse 7, we're told that, that uh, in the quarry is where the stones were cut, but there was to be no cutting of any stones around the temple because it's no human hands. Because you see what we have is you have a reference to the new end-time temple that Jesus has come to build. And we read about it today, that Jesus is this living stone and he's this cornerstone, and now we are living stones, and we're building up this house. But there's an interesting quote at the end of Mark, and only Mark quotes this, and if you can pull up the slide to Mark 14, 58, very interesting that this is said about Jesus. This is when he's on trial, and this is before he's going to make the great confession that I am he. And you will see the Son of Man coming again on the clouds of glory. That's the next few verses. Direct fulfillment of Daniel 7, 13, and 14. But we'll get there in two weeks. But right here, something is said that's only in the Gospel of Mark. And it's in, and you got to love Mark's attention to detail. Because only Mark is going to tell you this. That we heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another. How does he build it? Not made with hands. So that you would know that Jesus is fulfilling Daniel 2, 34 and 35 and 44 and 45. Mark is making it clear right there for you that you would make the connection back to Daniel 2 that that's what Jesus has come to do. And so he is the cornerstone And he's bringing down all these other stones of pomp or people thinking that they're great. And so how do we, where do we go with this? Let me just say this from the stone. 
We need to learn from Daniel 2 not to despise the day of small beginnings. This is a little stone, right? And, and, and Jesus, his birth is in Galilee. It's just in a manger. When Israel comes back from exile to rebuild the temple, it was a day of small beginnings. Jesus is born in Bethlehem. He's not born in Bethesda. He fled to Egypt, not Edinburgh. He was raised in Nazareth, not New York City. His parents were poor. They weren't from a prince's family. They give the meager offering at the temple. Jesus is a carpenter. He's not raised the son of a king. He's the cornerstone. And this cornerstone comes in this very small stone, and he's going to bring down all these other kingdoms and show that this is the kingdom that lasts forever. And all these other kings and kingdoms will pass away. But there's something about that name. You see, he's the cornerstone. And so Jesus is going to come, and he's going to conquer all these other kingdoms. And so the question for us this morning is, where's your hope? Is your hope in some earthly leader, some earthly kingdom? In whom is your faith? Is it in some person, or is it in Jesus? And who do you love? What do you really love? There was a Roman uh, under the Emperor Julian, and this was in the 300s. There was this battle where this Roman king, Emperor Julian, was wounded in a war with the Persians. And while Julian's expedition was in progress, one of Julian's followers was mocking a Christian in Antioch, and he mocked him by saying, He wanted to know what the carpenter's son was doing. And he was mocking him because at the time, Julian was, you know, building his empire. He was doing so, so well. And the Christian replied to the one mocking him, the maker of the world whom you call the carpenter's son is employed in making a coffin for the emperor. And within days, news came back to Antioch of Julian's death just a few days later. You see, Jesus is the king of the kingdom, and his kingdom has no end. When Louis XIV passed away, he wanted this one little, um, he wanted a candle to be lit at the casket of the front. He wanted to, to make it clear at this cathedral in Notre Dame that all would be dark except for this one candle at the front of the church. But the court preacher got up to begin the funeral oration and he walked over to the candle and he snuffed out the light and he said to those in attendance, only God is great. Only God is great. And what we see here in this Daniel 2 imagery of this breaking in pieces and they become like chaff of the summer threshing floor and the wind carried them away, does that sound like the very beginning of the Psalms, does it not? And we're told about the wicked and the righteous, and the wicked are not so. They're like the chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the day of judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. And then he says about this kingdom that's going to crush into pieces and bring them to an end. And that brings us to Psalm 2, where we're told about the Messiah. And the Father says, ask of me, and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance. And the very ends of the earth is your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. You see, this is ringing back to the very beginning of the Psalms. 
And so the response is to kiss the son, we're told, to pay homage to the son, bow to him, reverence him, kiss the son lest he be angry and you be destroyed in the way. The idea is that he is the savior of men. And he did it not by force. He did it by emptying himself. He didn't do it by might when he came to this world. He did it by going to a cross. And interestingly, the way that Rome was converted to Christianity was because Christians were giving up their lives. They were the one rescuing all the babies that were being left, and the Christians were the ones going and getting the babies. And they were the ones who were staying during the, during the, the plague, and many of them died giving their life. What changed the nation was the sacrificial love of the Christians who were following their leader who gave himself on a cross to shed his blood so that we could be saved and in right relationship with him. I wonder if some of you saw the video that was after the tornado that hit Kentucky about a year or two ago, and it, and it blew this town, was drastically hit, and this, I think it was the sister that filmed her brother, and the roof is gone, and most of the room is, but the, master, the grand piano is still there, and he has his back to her, and she's filming, and he's playing, king and kingdoms will all pass away but there's something about that name. And he's just playing the tune, giving glory to God that though all has been taken from us, we will give glory to the king because everything else is passing. We are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. The thing is, everything else will be shaken, including the United States, including Washington, D.C., including us. But this kingdom will not, be, will not pass away. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we acknowledge your lordship, your reign. You are the only one that has the power of life and of death. You hold the keys of death and Hades. You are the one to whom has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. You're the one who's been raised from the dead the one whom they couldn't find his body just so they could shut up these Christians. And Lord, we pray that you would change our perspective, change our affections, that we would love you, the king, and love your kingdom and what you're ushering in. And we long for the day when all is made right. Lord, help us as we wait. We pray for your kingdom to come. We ask in your name. Amen.